0: Now I know who's following me on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you, both of you. Galatians, I announced it yesterday on Twitter that we'd be studying the book of Galatians. Uh, We'll be doing a series from the book of Galatians called How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense how to be a good Christian, and other religious nonsense. And if you don't get that, you will eventually get that. We'll have 14 studies in the book of Galatians. It'll take us right up through the end of May to the beginning of summer. The title of this message is The Gospel Por Vida. The Gospel Por Vida. For those of you that are unnecessarily white, (laughs) Por Vida means for life, okay, forever. The Gospel for life, Holmes. That's what this message is about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. We thank you that your word is an expression of your love for us. God, we are and we frequently need to be overwhelmed by how much you love us. And we ask that that would be prevalent today, that nothing would overpower or overshadow that. Holy Spirit, you'd come and you pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts that we would truly experience the benefits of the cross the fullness of the love of God, and that it would be radically transformative in our lives. Lord, we say together that we're tired of trying to be better and trying to do good, and we just want to fall into your arms of love and be transformed by the power of your Spirit. So do that work in us. We ask together that you'd please anoint me to communicate in a way that glorifies you, Jesus, and is consistent with your word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, this new series, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense, it will be a verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians, but it centers on this one theme or idea that is really the main point of the book of Galatians, and it's this, that the only way to live the Christian life is by daily applying the gospel The only way to live the Christian life is by daily applying the gospel. Now, what do we mean when we say the gospel? Well, first of all, we realize that gospel means good news. Okay, and the first part of the good news is that you are, we are really, really bad. Okay, we're wicked. The gospel is good news, but there's a little bit of bad news in there. The gospel tells us that we are really bad. In fact, that we are worse than we could possibly imagine because the standard is not one another. The standard is God himself. According to that standard, we are worse than we could ever imagine, the gospel tells us. But the gospel simultaneously tells us that we are more loved than we have ever dared to imagine. And because of that love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. First, Jesus lived a perfect life because we live messed up lives. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life that would be attributed, credited to our accounts through the transaction of the cross. So Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a perfect life because we live messed up lives. And then he died in atoning death because we owe a debt, the debt of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Because we are more loved than we could ever think or imagine, God sent his son. The evidence of that love is that his son not only lived a perfect life in our place, but died in our place that he might give us brand new life. And now because of the cross, we are forgiven. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are accepted and we are adored. All of this by grace through faith. By grace, meaning it's undeserved, it's a free gift of God, you haven't done anything to merit, to deserve, or get it for yourself. By grace, through faith, meaning we have to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross, but not only believe in it, but put the weight of our trust for eternity in who Christ is and what he's done. All of this is by grace, it's a free gift, through faith, believing and trusting what Jesus has done, and requires repentance. It's not immediately replied to all of humanity. We must repent of our sins before God. And then the benefits of the cross and the gospel are applied to our lives. Now, that is the gospel and what the gospel says. Now, put the gospel in juxtaposition to religion. Okay, here's how we'll define those two things. Religion is man's attempt to be good with God okay? But the gospel is God's endeavor to make people right with him, okay? So one denotes what man is trying to do and one denotes what God has done. So religion in juxtaposition to the gospel says something entirely different than what the gospel says. As I said, I posted yesterday on Twitter and Facebook that I was going to be teaching this series, and I put the title of the series, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense, and it created some interesting conversations on Facebook. One lady posted right at the very beginning, she said, hmm, that's interesting because the other day I bumped into a rubber trash can while driving through Montecito in my car with the reality sticker on my car. And the homeowner came out and yelled at me and called me a bad Christian. Because apparently good Christians don't bump into trash cans. (laughs) Apparently good Christians drive well and would never hit a trash can. And if you can't drive well enough and you bump into a rubber trash can, you are a bad Christian. That's, That's the idea there. Another lady put on there, um, you know, I said I'm going to be teaching this series and she put on there, oh no, Pastor Britt too is departing from the faith. He's teaching series. He's not teaching verse by verse anymore. Because apparently good Christians only communicate truth verse by verse. And if you don't do it verse by verse, you're a bad Christian. I, I miss that verse in the Bible where it says that. I, <laughs> I didn't see that one. I miss the one about driving well makes you a good Christian. I, I miss those ones. But you see, here, here's what's going on. There, there's, there's pressure from, from within Christianity and from without Christianity on us to do better and be better. There's this idea that a good Christian does thus and so. A good Christian is this and that. That's put on us by non-believers, right? They've got a definite idea of what a good Christian is, and you're not it. And then even within the church, right? We've got these definitions of what a good Christian is. And what those two illustrations that I gave you are indicative of is this fact. That most of the time... Those are our man-made, self-proclaimed standards of holiness. That, that homeowner Montecito, his standard of holiness was driving well enough not to hit a trash can. And if you're not that holy, you're not a good Christian. And that, that mean lady on Facebook, her standard of holiness was, don't ever say it's a series, only say it's verse by verse. And so I'm, I'm not a good pastor or Christian. And, and we do this all the time. We make ourselves the standard of holiness what we do and what we think ought to be done is the standard by which we judge everybody else and by which we deem them good or bad Christians. But you see, that's, that's religion talking. That is not the gospel. The gospel makes no such distinction according to behavior or failures. Scripture makes no such distinction. There is nothing in Scripture that would cause us to categorize people as either good Christians or bad Christians according to what they've done or failed to do. You see, religion says you need to be better and do better. The gospel says Christ is better and has done better for you. Religion says you need to work hard at being good. The gospel says you are totally bad, but you've been made completely righteous, right with God by the work of Christ on your behalf, not by your own effort. Religion says if you perform well, then you will be more loved and more accepted. The gospel says you are perfectly accepted and loved by God already because of what Christ has done for you. Now, most Christians get that, that, that gospel idea as it pertains to salvation. Most of us understand, yes, okay, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's nothing we've done. It's everything Jesus has done. I get that. that that's how we're saved is we repent of our sins. But many Christians do not get this fact. But the gospel is not only that by which we are saved. The gospel is that by which we are meant to live every single day. Gospel truth is not only that by which we are saved. It is that by which we are meant to live the Christian life every day. We think the gospel is a message for not yet Christians. The gospel is a daily message for everybody and every single Christian. It must not only be believed for salvation, but it must be applied for life. That's why the title, the message is the Gospel Por Vida. It must be applied for life. And this is the argument of the book of Galatians. It's written to Christians, and it is urging Christians to live according to gospel truth and the merit of Christ and what he has done, and not ourselves. Now, the book of Galatians, as many of the New Testament books are, is a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And as a letter, it's got an opening, a salutation, like we write a letter, Dear so-and-so, how are you? I hope you're well, blah, blah, blah. Paul does the same thing here. Verse 1, he writes and says, This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group or people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 1 is really important for the argument of the book, and we'll deal with it next week. Verse 2, he says, All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches in Galatia. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father had planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. So Paul writes this letter to these churches in Galatia, and he does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We, we understand it to be scripture. It's a supernatural thing. He thought it was a letter. It becomes Bible. And Paul didn't write letters just to say hi, he didn't just have pen pals, but he wrote letters for specific reasons, and it was usually to address some theological problem or some relational difficulty prevalent in a church, okay? So, so what we have in these letters of Paul is what we might call situational theology, He's expounding theology to deal with a particular situation. But what we find about the situation of people 2,000 years ago is it is just like our situations today. The context has changed a little bit. It will look a little bit different. But people in churches have the same problems now that they did in this day. So all of this theology that Paul expands is very applicable to our lives. There's some different terms and and cultural context and we'll, we'll get to that. But the thing I want you to notice is what's absent from Paul's salutation here. You see, as you read through the book of Galatians, and I'd like you guys, if you would, to start reading it weekly, to start reading through it over and over again the next few weeks, because we really want to get the gist of the whole thing, and, and that'll really help you. As you're reading it, you'll see that Paul is mad in the book of Galatians. I mean, Paul is upset At something. He's so upset that that he did not thank the Lord for the churches in Galatia nor pray for them, which he does in all of his other letters. In all of his letters, no matter how messed up somebody is, like the church in Corinth, they were the most jacked up suckers you'll ever know. He writes and he says to the church in Corinth, Oh, I thank God for you for this and that. And he prays for them. No thanking God, no praying for the Galatians. (laughs) Paul is distinctly and profoundly upset about something when he's writing to the Galatians. Now, he had been there some years before and he had planted the churches in the region through the preaching of the gospel. And now in his absence, some people had come in that were teaching something that was different from the gospel that Paul taught. It's largely the subject of the book. And it was something that was not only wrong, but dangerous. Dangerous because number one, it was contrary to both the cross and the gospel, what they were saying. We'll talk about they a lot over the next few weeks. And secondly, because if what they were saying had taken hold, Christianity theoretically may have just disappeared into history as another Jewish sect promoting obedience to the law. It would have disappeared in history as just another sect of Judaism that said you need to obey the rules to have any sort of relationship with God. And that's just not what Christianity says. That's just not what the gospel says. So here's what these people were teaching. They acknowledged that the Galatians had heard, believed, and responded to the gospel and so been born again. Okay, they had been saved. But what they were saying was, now that you guys are saved, you need to start to work hard to be good Christians. You're Christians by grace through faith, but now it's time to get your rears in gear And start behaving properly, doing the right things, acting the right way in order to be good Christians. And in this cultural perspective and from these teachers who were Jewish, their idea was you need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. It's pretty removed from our context. We'll explore some of that in the next few weeks. But the idea was this. They're saying it's fine to begin the Christian life by believing in the gospel and that you haven't done anything to earn it and Christ has done everything to earn it for you. But now if you want to grow as a Christian, you really need to start to do the right things. That's what they were saying. And and Paul in the book of Galatians is going to say no, no, no. Look how strong he feels about this as we start reading verse 6. He says to the Galatians, I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Whenever it says good news, it's synonymous with gospel, okay? Gospel means good news. But it is not the gospel at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 8. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of gospel than the one we preach to you. I say again, and we've said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. That's kind of gnarly. You begin to see how dangerous Paul believes and Scripture pretends this to be. This idea that, okay, you were saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, totally the work of Christ, but but now you need to start working and performing well. And Paul says in verse 6, I am shocked that you're turning away. I am shocked that you are turning away. That phrase turning away, one word in the Greek, it's translated maybe better in the New American Standard Bible, deserting. Paul saying to them, I, I am shocked that you are deserting. That word deserting in the Greek means a transfer of one's allegiance. It was used to speak of those in the military who went AWOL. Those who revolted in the army or deserted their post. It, it was used to speak about people that, that changed their political or philosophical position. In other words, it's synonymous with a turncoat. Paul is saying that the Galatians are religious turncoat spiritual deserters. That they were turning from revolting against abandoning the gospel of grace and turning to a gospel of works, a performance-based Understanding. in other words what these guys were teaching to the church in Galatia that was so incorrect was yes your Christian life began with Christ but it needs to end with Moses with you obeying the law what we would say is you need to finish what Christ began by yourself through your obedience in other words what they are saying is you need to add to Christ's work and the whole point of the book is to do that is utter failure and an abandonment an abandonment of the gospel and an abandonment of God himself what did Paul say in verse 6 I am shocked you are turning away so soon from God It's not that they were just turning away from a certain theology or ideology or one singular truth. He said, you are turning away from God by thinking that you can somehow earn His favor through performance. Revolting against God. What they were thinking, that now they had to try to be good Christians, was an insult and an affront to the finished work of Christ on the cross. To have been saved by grace, and nothing that we've done, but then try to live according to performance and seek merit in that, is to desert God. And Paul will have nothing to do with it. You see, the the gospel, the good news that we couldn't possibly do for ourselves what Christ has done for us, is not only the way that we are saved, it's the way that we're called to live if it 's not the way that we 're called to live, then it 's not actually good news it 's only good news that we get to live gospel lives, that we get to apply apply the gospel to our lives, thought processes, feelings, relationships daily it 's not good news to say to someone okay you 've been saved." By nothing you did according to yourself, but Christ's work, but now start working hard. Be better. Do more. Be a good Christian. That, that's, that's not good news. What that brings us into is a never-ending trap of performance. And as a culture, we are utterly trapped by performance. We are a performance-oriented culture. Right? There, there is no end to the way we will deify and exalt people who perform well as a culture and there is no end to the way in which we will crucify those who cease to perform well. We are a performance-oriented culture. We are totally captivated by comparison. This is how we navigate our way through the world. It's trying to compare ourselves to one another. Oh, they're not they're not doing as well as I am. They don't look as good as I do. They they don't make as much as I do. They haven't achieved as much notoriety as I have. Therefore, I am better. That's how our culture functions. Some of you had this put on you as children by your father. This performance thing. You were never good enough. You never quite measured up. And now you are trapped in that. And, And you think God is like your dad. And that somehow, you, though you've been saved by grace, you, you really need to do better and try harder to be a good Christian, to really garner the attention and the favor of God. And that isn't good news. That only panders to that from which we have been saved. We have been saved from the endless race and desire to perform, compare, try harder, be better. It's slavery. It's slavery. And, and, and what Paul will say in Galatians 5.1 is this. So Christ has truly set you free. Now make sure that you stay free. And do not get tied up again in slavery to the law trying to do the right thing. Christ has truly set you free. Now Christian, having been set free, having been saved, make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up into slavery of thinking you need to do the right things, act the right way to be really accepted by God. Paul is passionate because that's incredibly dangerous. Here's here's how that's, that's dangerous right, being enslaved again and having a performance-oriented Christianity. A failure to grasp the implications of the gospel and apply it to our lives. In other words, a failure to grasp the fact that, man, I I really am more wicked than, than I ever imagined. But because I'm more loved than I could possibly imagine, Christ died for me and I'm completely and utterly and totally accepted and have favor with God. A failure to daily apply that to our lives, thought process, relationship, self-perception, a failure to do that will always lead to one of two equal but opposing errors, either pride or shame. A failure to apply the gospel daily to our lives, relationships, and thought processes will always lead to one of two equal but opposite errors, pride or shame. And most of us suffer from one of them, or both of them at alternating times, pride and shame. We either at times feel incorrectly good about ourselves, who we are and what we've done, or we feel incorrectly bad about ourselves, who we are, what we've done, and what we've failed to do. And some of us vacillate between the two almost minute by minute, like me. Is anyone else like that? Like one minute, you're like... I am awesome. The next minute you're like, I suck. And then like three minutes later, you're like, I'm doing really good. And you're like, oh, I'm doing terrible. And it's like, is it it just me? Am I the only freak here? Oh, okay. Good to know. The rest of you, most of the time, you're either thinking too highly of yourself because you fail to apply the gospel that says you're utterly wicked but utterly loved. Or you're thinking too lowly of yourself. And and here's what that does. Here's why this is destructive within culture, within family, within society. In addition to creating wrong feelings within ourselves about how we feel about ourselves, too much or too little. And in addition to creating wrong perception about about how we think God feels about us, right? That's what we do. Some of you, you, you read your Bible in the morning and you, you know listen to a sermon on the radio and you help an old lady across the street and you're thinking, God is so stoked with me today. And then you don't read your Bibles for a few days and you run into some trash cans in Montecito and you're thinking, God just is so disappointed in me. (laughs) So this failure to apply the gospel truth daily to our lives causes us to have false feelings about ourselves, false perceptions about how God feels about us, But now, importantly, for our culture and society, it causes us to act toward and deal with people incorrectly. A failure to apply the gospel causes us to act toward and deal with people incorrectly. You see, when we think too high of ourselves and not daily applying the gospel, then when it comes to other people, we have a proclivity to be cruel, cold, demeaning because we, we think too much of ourselves. And, and, and wanting to foster that because of a failure again to apply and think deeply on the gospel and want, wanting to foster that we push other people further down because what makes us feel better when we're in that place is people being less than. So failure to apply the gospel affects the way that we do relationships when we think too highly of ourselves. We're cool cold and demeaning to other people. Conversely, when we're ashamed of ourselves, then we find ourselves desperate to gain the favor and approval of other people. And that manifests and acts out in all sorts of aberrant behaviors. There is almost almost no end to what humanity will do to gain approval from one another. There's almost no end. And again, we're, we're trapped in that, in this performance-oriented culture. And so a fa- failure to think deeply on and apply the gospel daily will lead to a lifetime of bad, unhealthy, dysfunctional behaviors and relationships. Almost every re- form of relational brokenness in our lives can be traced back to a failure to think rightly about and apply the gospel. We either didn't realize the depth of our depravity or we didn't realize the fullness of God's love and, and the totality of, of his acceptance toward us because of what Christ has done. Almost all of our relational difficulties are the result of failing to apply the gospel to ourselves and then letting that work out relationally. You see, and so then, so then the gospel becomes the answer. To all these things. To, To the Christian who thinks too highly of himself or herself, the gospel says you're a sinner. You're wicked and bad. You've done nothing to earn anything of any value before God. Your efforts to do better and be better than others are ultimately meaningless. Even the best things that you have done are filthy rags before the Lord, according to his standard. It isn't about you or what you can do. It's about Jesus and what he has done for you you are helpless and lost. But because of the gospel, you have been saved and you are more loved and accepted than you could possibly imagine. And at the same time then, the gospel will say to the Christian who is trapped in shame and condemnation and perhaps thinks too lowly of themselves, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine. You have full approval from God. Everything you ever did that was so wrong and wicked has been removed, dealt with, forgiven, and forgotten. You have been washed. You have been cleansed. You are made righteous. There is no need to try to impress God because you are perfectly and fully adored by Him. And then these gospel truths and what they say about our acceptance before God, despite our performance, change the way that we relationally deal with people. Right? Because, listen to this, when when we're freed by the gospel of this self-imposed need to do better and perform better and be a good Christian, when we're freed by that before God, I don't have to be better for God anymore. Then we are effectually freed from having to be better than other people. And that's a problem we have. There's not one of us in here that doesn't want to be better than other people. But an application of the gospel frees us from that need to be better than other people. So it, it then simultaneously also frees us from the need to gain others' Approval. Because if we have the approval of the God of the universe, how stupid is it to need the approval of some chick or some guy or some audience? Like, how dumb is that? You have the approval of the God of the universe and you're worried about what she thinks? No, you need to apply the gospel. An application of the gospel frees us from the need to be better than and the need to gain the approval of because it settles the issue of identity. That we're freed from the slavery of getting our identity by either measuring up to that standard or comparing ourselves to, and our identity is now found in what Jesus Christ has done for us and the love of God that's been shown us. And so identity issues are now secure in the gospel. So we can begin to have right relationships. And these goals of right relationships and thinking right about self and our perceptions of how God feels about us, they are never achieved by trying to do better. It's it's just not how it works. There's no such thing as being a good Christian and now God feels good about you. It's just not how God operates. To the one enslaved by needing to perform well, the gospel says You never have, and you never will impress God. To the one who's enslaved by the need for approval, it says you have all the approval ever possible in God. Tim Keller says this, The gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous, so we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. That must be thought on and applied to life daily. In any effort to achieve approval, before God by being good is an abandonment of the gospel and God and dangerous. Now, so what I'm saying is Christians don't have to be good. We could do whatever we dang well please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, that's true. One homeboy back there was like, that's right. That's right. I see you. He's like, that's right. That's kind of right. But, but there are some standards In the Bible, right? Even in the New Testament, there are some standards. But here's what happens when we grasp the gospel, okay? The motive and the mode for obedience change. The motive and the mode change. The motive ceases to be, I got to do better just to be better, to feel better, to be approved of. That that ceases altogether. On the God level and on the human level, that ceases altogether. And the motive now, instead of trying to... um, make God feel better about us, the motive now becomes us enjoying God. That's the motive. Us enjoying God. Because what the standards are in the Bible is an easy discernible sort of explanation of the beauty of God. In other words, they show us a little more what God is like in juxtaposition to us. And so the more that we participate in those things, and get those things, and live according to those things, the more we experience the life of God. And it's the difference between being a slave or being a son. In Galatians chapter 3 and 4, we'll deal with this in a few weeks. But, but a slave says, got to do, got to do, got to try, got to be better, got to make the master happy. And a son says, I, I, I just want to be with Pops and enjoy all his stuff. Right? That, that's the difference. We, we, we've been saved from slavery. We've been made sons. The Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy, to God. And so now the rules are a way by which we can enjoy more of the life of God, participating in who He is. It's, it's not burdensome anymore. It's, it's beautiful. So the motive changes, and then the mode changes. The mode is no longer self-effort. It's no longer pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But the mode now of obedience is transformation. Paul's not going to say you don't need to obey. Paul's going to say if you try to do it in and of yourselves, your life is going to suck. But if you walk in the Spirit, your life is going to change. That's what he's going to say in chapter 5. That the, the Spirit of God, when we walk with the Spirit of God according to gospel truth, will actually change us from the inside out so that the mode of obedience isn't trying harder anymore. The mode of obedience is the more you're with God, the more you're like God. So Galatians is deeply concerned that we learn to apply the gospel to our daily lives and and to teach us that to be accepted by God through Christ and then feel that somehow we need to start to perform for God is wrong. It's wrong in the way it makes you feel good when you do good and it's wrong in the way it makes you feel bad when you do bad. And, And I'll just say this, that both of those things need to be repented of. Those of you that are caught up in thinking you perform well, you need to repent. The gospel says to you, hmm, not so much. And Those of you that are trapped in shame and condemnation, you need to repent because the gospel says it's dealt with, it's done with. You're accepted and adored and loved. Both extremes and their vacillations need to be repented of. Like today, like if your issue is this performing and I'm going to be better, you need to repent. If it's this woe is me, I'm walling in shame, you need to repent. Because of what God has done for you. Summarize there in verse four. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. You see, Christianity is a rescue thing. We've been rescued. The, the idea there is emancipated. We've been emancipated from slavery, from a culture that enslaves through performance and comparison. We've been emancipated from that. Okay, emancipated, d- delivered, rescued from. When it says this evil world, don't think world in the sense of the physical world. And The idea there is really the tone and the tenor of the age. The Bible tells us there's two ages that coexist. This age and the age to come. The age to come being characterized by God and his kingdom. It was inaugurated when Christ came and, and now exists simultaneously along with this wicked age, tone and tenor and ideology of the world, coexisting simultaneously is the age of God, a new way. And to be delivered from this age is to be delivered from performance, comparison, merit-based relational realities and be brought into the freeness of grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, acceptance. We, we, we are freed to live in that way. And that will help us realize what verse three says. May God our Father and the Lord Christ Jesus give you grace and peace peace is not just the absence of trouble peace is the reality of belonging that no matter how awry this world goes you belong to king jesus and you're adored by him and grace grace always speaks of beauty and favor beauty and favor may the grace of god be upon you one commentator says what's paul saying is this may the un deserved love of god be on you so that it will make your life lovely lord do that in us beautify our lives with the gospel lord thank you for these deep and wonderful truths we pray together that they wouldn't be lost on anyone in this room but holy spirit with your help we would grasp them and begin to live them Lord, come and help us in our pride and in our shame. Come and open our eyes to how the gospel speaks into the drama of our lives and, and, and brings healing in relationships. And, and most of all, Holy Spirit, come and pour the love of the Father broaden our hearts in such a way that nobody here would possibly mistake how loved they are by you. Come and do that, God. If you guys need any help at all, there'll be prayer team, pastors and elders up on my right and my left. Carpets are up here. These guys will make some space for you and you can come and get on your face before the Lord. I'm confident he'll meet you, shower his grace and peace on you. Communion is here to celebrate the cross. Let's do that.